that our holiness does not meet the standard that God requires. Well, you can be relieved of that fear. It doesn't. It does not meet God's standard. And that is such wonderful news. Beloved, if we could meet God's standard, then we would be the one to pay the debt that was levied upon us by the first Adam, by our federal head, and to satisfy the charge of sin to our account. But we cannot satisfy the righteous demands of the law. Our own holiness cannot satisfy a God who demands perfection in thought, in word, and in deed. Beloved, we need an alien righteousness. We need a righteousness that is not our own. We need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not only to have our debt paid in his life's blood and sacrifice, but to have a positive righteousness imputed to us through his perfect life as well. Yes, we need to have our debts paid. But if we have our debt, if all of our debt is just paid, then our account simply reads zero. Even with our debt paid, now what will we offer our king on that day? What crown will we cast before him? What gift will we bring? We must have a positive righteousness credited to our account. That is why Jesus had to live a perfect life as well. Isn't that amazing? Even the gifts we have to bring, the crown that we've been given to cast before him on that day, even that is all of grace given to us, imputed to us through Jesus' perfect life. It's all of Him. And it is Him that we are here to worship and adore and learn of this morning. Amen? Amen. Not too loud now. All right, well, two weeks ago, we left off our series in Mark, having begun the 12th chapter with a two-part series titled Parable and Prophecy. If you missed part one, it's available on both Facebook and Sermon Audio. And I pray that part one was helpful to you as we did a bit of a deep dive into the topic of parables. A parable simply being what? An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. We learned what parables are and how we're to read and interpret them and why Jesus spoke so often using them. So if you're wanting a bit of a crash course on the topic of parables, be sure to check out part one. However, up to this point, we see throughout the Gospels that parables were often spoken of in the positive sense, meaning they were spoken by Jesus to those who indeed had ears to hear and eyes to see, who had a heart to receive. But here in this parable, here in this journey of what's often titled the parable of the vine growers, we see something very different. And something very unique happens in Jesus' usage. Now, the most common purpose of a parable, as you know, is to both reveal and to conceal, right? To reveal to those who can see and to conceal from those who cannot, Meaning, if you have a hard heart, if you have an unbelieving heart, you're not going to understand this parable. But here in our text today, something changes. Something very unique happens in Jesus' usage. Instead of speaking to the positive, revealing and concealing, Jesus pronounces judgment in this parable and causes the wicked not to be blind to the meaning but to see exactly what he is saying. 
As Jesus is speaking to the religious elite of all Judaism and Israel, which at this point had, had devolved into a false religion, what do we see at the very end of our text? Chapter 12, verse 12. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the crowd. Why? For they understood that he spoke the parable against them. Do we see what happened there? Instead of concealing this parable from the wicked, I'm going to reveal this parable to the wicked. You are going to know exactly what I'm saying. And why do this? Why now? Why change the way you've been using parables up to this point? Well, just as we mentioned in part one, because it's time. It's time. It's time to poke the bear right in the eye. The most powerful governing religious body in all of Israel, the Sanhedrin. That's the audience of the parable today. The parable is said that this evil that they're already plotting in their heart would be made manifest. That's why he's saying it. That God's divine timetable for the sacrifice of his son on Passover would be completed in perfection and for our redemption. And thus Jesus tells a story. The story which we began last week, a story that begins as a parable, and as we will see this week, turns to prophecy. And in this story, Jesus has two primary aims. Very simple. Big picture here. One, he's going to tell the people that are going to kill him that they're going to kill him. And second, he will lay the hypocrisy of Israel, you who lay claim as God's chosen people who have done nothing but kill the messengers God has sent to you continually since the beginning. Nothing will change. Nothing has changed. They killed the one sent by God who pointed to the Messiah to come. And indeed, they will kill Messiah himself. Now, by way of reminder, let us recall our, our characters and illustrations we've seen in our story up to this point. We see the man who has planted and prepared the vineyard. That is God. And we have a vineyard. That is Israel. Observed also were the vine growers. We also call them the tenants or the farmers. And these represent, of course, the religious leadership of Israel. And we don't need to surmise this. How do we know? Well, we saw in part one that Jesus is lifting this story almost verbatim from Isaiah chapter five, nearly word for word. And thus Isaiah five gives us our immediate meaning. It gives us our context and our color. It gives us everything. If we understand Isaiah five, we're going to understand Jesus pronouncement. So in Isaiah five, we see what is called the song of the vineyard. It's a song of judgment. God is saying that I have built this beautiful vineyard. I have provided and prepared everything for her. And I've done so that I might have good fruit, good grapes. But even after much toil, all we get are sour grapes. I have toiled and labored for my vineyard, but it is continually worthless. So I'm going to judge the vineyard. I'm going to remove my protection and it's going to be destroyed. The song of the vineyard in Isaiah 5, as we saw, is the prophecy of Israel's judgment and destruction that was coming at the hands of the Babylonians. So if our listeners to Jesus today were paying attention, to be proclaiming Isaiah is to be proclaiming judgment. 
God has labored with great care to plant and to protect and to provide. And yet it is continually worthless. She will not produce. And yet as we consider our Savior's story to this point, last week in the first verse, this story was fairly benign, wasn't it? This was a fairly normal story. An owner plants a vineyard. He gives it over to the stewardship of tenants. That was very common. A normal transaction. Nothing to raise any suspicions. And as we recall, a typical vineyard takes about what? About five years or so to produce. In fact, Levitical law required that five years be given before one harvested the grapes. So what happened in the meantime? What happened during that span of five years? Well, the tenants would plant vegetables and other foods in rows between the vines. And the owner would come and they would collect usually 50% of those vegetables during those five years. Now, he did this not only to harvest a return during that time, but why else? This was a way for the owner to maintain and to assert their rights over that property. It was a way to tangibly remind the tenants who owned this land. But what's happened in our story? Has the owner stayed there and asserted his rights every day? Did he take the vegetables that he was owed? No. What did the owner do? Verse 1 says that he went on a journey. In fact, Luke's gospel says he went on a long journey. Of course, this long journey representing the entire timeline of the Old Testament. And now with the owner gone for so long, what begins to happen to the workers, to the tenants? Out of sight, out of mind, yes? They begin to forget who owns this land and who made the rules. I'm not there as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night that you might see. I've left my law with you. I've left my promises with you. I've given you my commands and I will come for my payment in due time. And I will send servants and slaves along the way to remind you that I'm here that represent me to you. And not only will I send slaves and servants, but he will even send his own son. And as we said, the story opener has been pretty benign at the outset until it takes quite a turn for the violent, we saw in verses 3 through 5, as the tenants began beating the slaves sent to them, beating them viciously with graphic depictions, meaning the removal of their skin. I say that not to gross you out, but that we might grasp the wickedness of the tenants, ergo the wickedness of Israel toward those sent to call her back to her first love. Even verse 5, they killed the last slave sent to them. Thus it has always been, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as hens gather her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. God sent one after another. And in that we behold not only the depravity of man, but the long suffering and the patience of God. Did we not? And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Each one who has experienced the regeneration of the Spirit, of being born again, we can all look back and marvel at the patience of God toward us. Can we not? While we were haters of God, figuratively killing those sent to us with the hope of the gospel. And yet this owner sent messenger after messenger. They beat and killed them. Now, at this point in the story, every ear is perked as we no longer have a normal story. And you can almost hear the gears beginning to turn of those listening to Jesus. First thinking in their hearts, what a terrible thing these tenants have done. And then suddenly realizing that he's talking about you. And today we continue on in Wednesday of Passion Week on this journey of what is often titled the parable of the vine growers. And where we will complete the parable and witness Jesus' seamless transition from the parable to prophecy, laying bare what awaits those who have committed such evil deeds. So with that, let's look to our text this morning, beloved. Once again, though our text today is only verses 6 through 12, I'm going to read the entire parable so we have the full context. So we'll be reading Mark 12, 1 through 12. Mark 12, 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the winepress and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine growers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. And again, he sent them another slave and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is their heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him. And yet they feared the crowd, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are difficult passages for us. Lord, as all Scripture is a mirror that we might look into, that we might see our own selves and our own heart as we are in truth, we ask, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts to receive this word. Lord, that the soil of our heart might be tilled, that any fallow ground might be turned up, that the seed might be implanted mightily. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. 
We have much ground to cover this morning, a lot. So we're going to dive right into our first verse here, verse 6, as our parable continues. We read in Mark 12, verse 6, He had one more, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. Now, of course, it goes without saying who we speak of here. Jesus speaks of himself, the beloved son. But as we mentioned in part one, at this point in the story, the listeners would have been incredulous, would they not? They've beaten and killed the slaves sent to collect what rightfully belonged to the owner. Now that's unthinkable. That's unimaginable to the listener. Yet now we have just exploded the cost and the risk. He had one more. A beloved son. Now, everyone listening by now has categorized the tenants as evil, right? So have you, which we have, and they are. But the mental shift now begins to draw onto the owner, does it not? What is the deal with this guy, right? Is this owner not too bright? Now, it's often said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. He sent one slave after another. And now he's going to send his only son. So the listener now is saying in his mind, no, don't do it. What more proof do you need that these men are wicked to the core? That they have a plan and they will not care who you're going to send. They're going to kill them. But beloved, the owner is not insane. God the Father is not a reactive God. He is a planning God. People live in such trepidation and fear. Fear of this world. Fear of every conceivable possibility. Fear even of their own salvation. Because they think they serve a God who reacts. Who can be caught off guard. And not a God who plans. Not a God who ordains paths from the foundation of the earth. And here, as the storyline carries along, we get just such a glimpse of this planning. Now, note in verse 6, we see that he sent him last of all to them. Now, this word is positively charged with expectation and planning. Our word here for last is eschatos. Of course, that's where we derive eschatology, right? From meaning study of last things. It is just so here. When Jesus says eschatos, he is relaying that this is the last step in a series of planned events. It is the final stage of a predetermined process. Jesus is the last step. You've killed and mistreated all the messengers sent up to you until this point. Even John the Baptist's blood still cries out fresh from the ground. There is one last voice that will be sent. The voice of the Son, calling Israel to repentance. Surely they will listen to the Son. Surely they will listen to the one that I've given all my authority and privilege to, who comes bearing my ring and my seal. For all intents and purposes, he is me. But behold the wickedness that's bound up in the heart of men. Look at this in verse 7. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Now, hang on. Watch this. 
Remember who our tenants represent. They are the religious leadership of Israel. And what do we see them doing concerning the sun? They're colluding. They're colluding. They are conspiring. They, like God, are also a planning people. But ultimately, their plans shall not stand. Many are the plans in the mind of a man. But it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Yet we must understand the foundation by which this wickedness comes. Our text says, but those vine growers said to one another. They said, meaning they spoke. Where does that come from? Proverbs tells us that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Everything we speak was first in our heart before it came out of our mouth. Circumstances, opportunities, other people just squeeze the heart like a tube of toothpaste and out it comes. The circumstance didn't cause it. The circumstance exposed it. You say, man, that person made me angry. No, they didn't. You had anger already in your heart and that person squeezed it out. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So how about thanking the Lord for those difficult people in our lives that expose what lies hidden in the heart? So here in our text, the vine growers spoke to one another. The circumstance of thinking they can keep this vineyard for themselves has revealed the idolatry and the scheming and the wickedness in their hearts. For out of the heart, Jesus said, Matthew 15, 19, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. That's where it comes from. The devil didn't make you do it. It comes out of the heart. And here the hearts of the religious leaders of Israel are corrupt. They're fallen and sick. The heart being what? What does that mean? The heart being your thoughts and your motives and your desires. The heart being the seat of your will and affection. And they are desperately wicked, Jeremiah tells us. That's why we need new hearts, isn't it, beloved? Why we must be born again. Why we must be made a new creation. Look back to our text. Notice something with me. This is the air. I have to say that again. This is the air. Listen to the words from the overflow of their heart. This is the air. They know who he is. They know he's the son. Has Jesus not performed every messianic miracle by their own teaching, miracles that only Messiah would and could perform? Messianic fervor was always at a fever pitch around Passover time. They were aware of anyone making such claims. They had their own division to investigate such claims. They have haunted Jesus' steps for nearly three years now. And this is the judgment, John 3.19. The light has come into the world. And the people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Oh, foolish man. Oh, foolish tenants. You think if you will kill the son, you will retain power. 
This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They know he's the son. They know what he's claimed, and they want to kill him for it. They want to kill him for threatening their lust for power. They behold that their kingdom, their kingdom, must crumble if Jesus be who he says he is. If the Son appears, then all authority is his. It's all his. So we must kill him. But this is no ordinary killing. This isn't just business, removing an obstacle to their plans. No. Look look at verse 8, beloved. Look at verse 8. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. There can be no more act of hate and scorn and derision and utter loathing in Jewish culture than to throw a body to the elements. To throw it outside the walls that the animals might consume it. That it might rot in the open air. I'm not trying to gross you out here. This is to demonstrate that they hate him. We must understand this element of the heart that would crucify the Lord of glory. We must understand why the world feels the way that it does toward Jesus and why he is the only one in history that is worthy of being made into his own cuss word. Nobody blasphemes Muhammad or Buddha. It is Jesus Christ they hate. It is Jesus Christ that they would just assume rot outside the vineyard walls. And so they took him, they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. And even while they took him, and then they even killed him, yes, they would have even thrown his body out with the corpses into the trash pit of Gehenna were it not for Joseph of Arimathea. All this would give the illusion of control, the illusion of maintaining their power, that they've taken care of this Jesus problem. We've had him killed. And yet Jesus spoke clearly. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Yes, the wicked men's scheme. However, this is God allowing the greatest evil in history to accomplish the greatest good in all of history. We see now in our text our seamless transition from parable to prophecy. This is what will happen in only a few short days. And yet Jesus does something incredible at this point. Watch what he does. Look to verse 9, beloved. Verse 9. What? will the owner of the vineyard do? Stop there. That is brilliant. Jesus makes them proclaim their own fate. What should the owner of the vineyard do? Tell me, what should he do with such wicked men? Go on, tell me. I don't know about you, but this brought me right back to David and the prophet Nathan. When Nathan gives David a story in 2 Samuel about an injustice toward a poor man. And David is livid, right? And he pronounces immediate judgment on such a wicked man who would do such a thing. 
David had in fact pronounced his own sin. And Nathan said, you are that man. And there we see one shining reason why David was a man after God's own heart. He wasn't defined by his sin, but he repented when confronted with it. The very opposite of the religious leader's reaction today. The prophet Nathan made David proclaim his own sin and the rightful judgment. He runs him headlong into it. And Jesus does the same. What will the owner of the vineyard do? You're the religious leaders of Israel. What do we do with murderers? What do we do with them? What does your own law say? Well, Matthew records their response. The leaders say, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. That's what they said, the Sanhedrin. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. This had to come out of their mouth like regurgitating a knife. They know at this point what Jesus is saying. But the whole crowd is listening. What can they say? They have to say the right thing. These tenants should be executed. They're wretches. Understand, beloved, that these men are seething at this point. But they have no choice but to give the right answer, as Matthew records. Of course, Jesus concurs, doesn't he? Last part of verse 9, what should the owner do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. You are unfaithful stewards of the truth of God. You have perverted it and taken the glory for yourself. So I'm going to destroy the vine growers, the religious leadership of Israel. You'll no longer be the protector and the possessor of the presence of God. Paul speaks of this shift in Romans. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Meaning I am doing a new work. I'm going to give the vineyard to others. We see here the prophetic announcing of the body of Christ. The church, as these 11 apostles themselves will stand upon the chief cornerstone, there will be a new steward of the mysteries of God. And Paul tells us as much in Ephesians 2.20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Jesus goes on to remove all veiled references at this point. And he switches imagery. We're out of the vineyard now. So as to be unmistakable. Watch what Jesus does here in verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11. Have you not even read this scripture? Now pause on that. Understand, beloved, that this is the supreme slam to the religious elite. Have you not even read? That's fancy talk for, I thought you were so educated. You tout yourself as the experts, yet you're blind as can be. And here Jesus pulls out an unmistakable messianic reference from Psalm 118.22 that we read this morning even. The stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. This psalm, 
proclaiming that there is a stone. And the builders inspected this stone and they did not want the stone. So they rejected the stone. They cast away the stone just as they would kill the sun and cast the sun outside the walls rejected by men. But Jesus has become the chief cornerstone, meaning the stone that binds it all together, that consummates the very essence and structure of the building. You religious leaders who build this building, who erect monuments of pride to yourself, have no cornerstone. He was there. He was there in all power, all majesty, all authority, casting out demons, healing the sick, proclaiming liberty to the captives. He was there. And you stonemasons, you builders, you religious leaders have rejected the cornerstone. But understand, beloved, he is still the stone. Just because we cast it aside does not mean that we do not have to contend with it. This morning, you may choose as a wise man to build upon that stone, to build your life with Christ as your chief cornerstone. Or this stone may be a stumbling block for you this morning. You may stub your toe on that stone every turn you make. So stop kicking it. Stop tripping over it. Repent and build upon it. If you do not, the stone that so many reject, the stone that people kick, stumble, and trip over, Scripture says at the last judgment, the cornerstone will become the crushing stone, and it will grind to powder. Consider the prophet Isaiah 8, 14-15. Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. Now hear the continuity of Scripture in Peter's first epistle. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom, they also were appointed. We all must do business with the chief cornerstone. Every one of us. We may build upon it and we will not be disappointed. Or we may stumble and trip over it. We may become offended by it. And if we remain there, we will certainly be crushed by it. You may reject the cornerstone but you cannot cast it aside forever. Its weight is far, far too great. Now back to our text. Consider verse 11. Consider verse 11. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Indeed, how marvelous. Jesus is drawing their gaze to Psalm 118 once again. 
Now, this was the psalm often sung at Passover, very highly used. Jesus is saying this has all been planned. This has all come about from the Lord. The vineyard belongs to the owner and he will possess it. The building will be built and the cornerstone has been provided. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Your rejection of the cornerstone has been known before the created element of time began on the first day of creation. And yet it is marvelous in our eyes. Why? What is marvelous here? Through this rejection, through the wickedness contrived in the hearts of men, the greatest good, the greatest miracle of all time would be accomplished. The saving of men's souls, reconciling sinful man to a holy God, redeeming our life from the pit, taking dead men and making them live. And just in case anyone was wondering, that beauty, that which is marvelous, look to our text. It came from the Lord. It didn't come from you. Your marvelous redemption did not come from you. Your marvelous salvation did not come from you. Stop wasting your life on a crumbling, man-centered theology and give God the glory. The cry of evangelicalism today is not, this came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. The cry, this came about from me. And it is marvelous in my eyes. We must teach the text. Christ came to save sinners. That's why there is a cornerstone. That's the building God is constructing for his glory. And watch me perform the most marvelous of miracles. I'm going to turn haters of God into lovers of God. And yet, how many today want the credit for the most marvelous miracle of all time? You were dead in your sins. And all a dead man can do is stink. He doesn't need our permission to perform that which is marvelous. Give God the glory. This came about from the Lord. And it is marvelous in our eyes. What is the response to Jesus' story? What is the response to Jesus shining the flashlight in their eyes? It's never pleasant, is it? They're going to hate him for it. They're going to want to kill him for it. They have a kingdom. And they're at the center of it. But that's not God's building. There is only one cornerstone. And they have rejected it. Now look, beloved, to our final verse, verse 12. And they were seeking to seize him. And yet they feared the crowd. For they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Oh, so much tragedy wrapped up in a single verse. Desiring to seize the darling of heaven because your own kingdom is under assault. Driven by fear of man, not fear of God. 
understanding the truth even that's being laid before them and yet rejecting it, leaving the Lord of glory and walking away to contrive even more evil. That is the truth of our ending in our parable turned prophecy. In our story of the vine growers, yes, it is somber. Yes, it is evil. Beloved, this is fuel for the most wicked act in history. The execution of a spotless, blameless man. A man in whom no deceit was ever found. Perfection slain for us. But praise God that the rejected stone has become the resurrected stone. And in this we have great joy for those who would stand upon it this morning, those who would build their lives and their eternity upon it. Our hearts may sing with Isaac Watts, the famous hymn, No more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. As we continue our march toward Calvary this Christmas season, what joy awaits those who trust in the chief cornerstone, rejected and resurrected? Joy to the world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled by your word this morning. A difficult message, but Lord, one that our hearts so desperately need. Lord, we are often a dry land that needs the water of your word and the water of your spirit given to us in full measure, Lord, that we might walk a life pleasing to you. It is our desire that we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Heavenly Father, we ask as many are out sick this week, Lord, that you would keep them and bring them back to full health and keep us until we can meet again. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.